Hello, lovelies. Welcome to the Fat Joy Podcast, where we talk each week about how to flourish in an anti-fat world. I'm Sophia Apostle, a fat professional coach who loves talking to other fat people about what it's like to live within oppressive systems that marginalize our bodies and how we still dare to have the audacity and courage to reach towards our collective liberation and embrace our joy. Please know this is an adult content podcast, so there will be swears. We will be talking about harms we've experienced, and we will be rebelling against weight stigma, diet culture, fat phobia, ableism, racism, etc. You can get more Fat Joy goodness, including how you can support the podcast through my newsletter at fatjoy.substack.com. And for episode transcripts, book reviews, and show notes, head to the Fat Joy website at fatjoy.life. I am so glad you're here. Enjoy this episode. Hello, lovelies. Welcome back to the Fat Joy podcast. I'm your host, Sophia. And I'm like almost speechless, wordless. I have tears in my eyes because with us today is Adrienne Marie Brown, who is someone I, oh my gosh, Adrienne, I'm going to cry. Um, someone who I've admired <laughs> and looked up to and read and just been so inspired by for years. So, I was shocked. I literally started bawling when I got the message that the answer was yes to be on the podcast. And you are here and I'm just really honored. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me here. And thanks for doing this podcast. It feels like a really important intervention. I was grateful to receive the invite. Mm, Thank you. Uh, So Adrian, for people who do not know you, (laughs) can you tell us a little bit about yourself? My name is Adrian Marie Brown. I am a writer primarily. I'm an artist. I make music. And uh, my background, I've spent a ton of my life doing social justice facilitation and mediation. I am mixed race, black and white from the dirty South. And I live currently in the South. And I am all about really being in the body, being in right relationship with change, being in relationship to pleasure, being in relationship to justice. Uh, those are kind of the, I, I call myself a gardener of healing ideas. So I'm trying to grow healing ideas in public. <laughs> and I have a few podcasts myself, primarily right now I'm focused on how to survive the end of the world. But I really love conversation as a way of learning and and relating to the world so that's me i'm a virgo i'm a virgo awesome i'm a gemini but i'm virgo ascending so i have i have a lot of virgo in me i've got so many gemini's in my life gemini and virgo with that mercury guide is you know there's a lot of compatibility in our ways of moving through the world (laughs) we are mercurial (laughs) Um, I love that metaphor of the garden growing, growing a garden of healing. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. I'm going to get to the second question in a minute, but I just want to ask first, how are you feeling about your garden these days? You know, I think the test of a gardener, the test of ideas is how they hold up it when the weather gets stormy and haily and rocky. And we are now two months into this um, situation in Palestine, which uh, for me and, and the community I'm in, we've been calling it a genocide. And 
but it's it's been a time of a lot of murky misinformation, a lot of confusion and a lot of grief and fear and polarization. And so I've been actually feeling really grateful for the garden of ideas because it's allowed me to be fractal, like to feel like I, I don't have to know everything, but as an individual, I can really be focused on how I am moving towards love and justice and how I am in relationship to like the country that I live in and the decisions we make and searching for the small pleasures inside the grief, searching for this idea of transformative justice that we want to hold on to the people, but cancel the bad ideas that are keeping us from each other. So right now it feels like the garden is actually resilient and it's it's been really helping me to move through this and, and just be like, I don't know everything. I don't know all the answers, but I, I do trust that relationship with each other and with the idea that this could be a moment of great change that moves us in the right direction, that that all feels available to me right now. So it's been, it, it's helpful. I I hear so much permission in that, and which to me hits right to the tension point that I often feel about I feel like either have to do everything or just completely give up and wallow in hopelessness. It really feels like the extremes are so present and trying to find that fractal, to use your word. I, yeah, again, I will go, we'll go into this further, but because I am so curious about how to do that, how to hold the both and when it's really big, scary, harmful stuff. Okay, we're going to come back to that. So I think I first heard about you. I'm trying to remember because it's been years, but I know in the early days of my knowledge of you, it was a lot to do with how you spoke about your body. My second question with every guest is always about your relationship with journey with the word fat. And how, how has that shown up for you, through you, f- through your life? I think I appreciate that, that, that you asked this question, that this is something that you explore in a almost ritualistic way on the show, right? That's like, oh, deciding our relationship to language is so important. I think like many people, when I was younger, fat was a bad word. It was a dirty word. It was like one that I was constantly trying to avoid and... I took on the shape of someone who didn't want to be seen as fat. So regardless of how big I was, I was constantly tucking in my shoulders, sucking in my gut, trying to, you know, even I noticed there's a tightness in my eyebrows because I'm like trying to make everything as compact and tight as possible. And it was the water that I was swimming in was all about disordered eating and disordered relationship to the body, like all of us. So I couldn't, I could never have imagined seeing fat as a positive thing. And I remember one of my earliest jobs was at the harm reduction coalition in New York city. And someone who became a dear friend of mine, Shira Hassan came walking in one day with pamphlets for a camp that she was putting on called fat camp. And it was PHAT camp, but it was all for people of size. It was people who either identified as fat or people who the world would identify as fat. And 
I was just kind of shocked. Like, what are you, (laughs) what are you up to? And like, do you know that this is like not a good thing? And she just talked me through the first round of, of what reclamation could look like of this terminology. And I could see that in her own body and her own skin, that she didn't experience fatness as something to be ashamed of. And that really shocked me. But I was like, but we have to be ashamed. Like we're fat, we're bad. Like we, we failed at health or something, right? And so I continued on that path of, I will say it's a dual, dual path, right? For me, it's always felt like a complex space. I feel very proud of my body. I love being a fat woman. I feel very at ease in my body now. And I'm always studying the impacts of fatness on my body and in my body. And, you know, I know there's some people who are like, it doesn't have any impact. And I know folks are like, it has all the impact and navigating the medical industrial complex where, you know, you're like, my eyelid hurts. And like, it's because you're fat, you know, so (laughs) trying to navigate that world that sees fat as the, the reason for all bad things in the body. And then feeling the truth in my body, which is, you know, I have a great blood pressure. My heart works great. My lungs work great. And I'm physically quite active. I swim every day. Like I, I have a lot of health in my body as a fat person, which feels really important to me. But I've had a lot of mobility issues as well. So now I'm in this conversation with people where it's like, how do I find the right fatness for me? Because <laughs> I'm like, I really don't want to lose all the juicy, curvaceous, luscious aspects of myself. Like I feel very much that my sensuality and my life force is tied up in my fatness and my um, abundance of body. And I really want to be able to walk (laughs) as far as I can for as long as I can. So right now we're in that dance (laughs) and I've been doing a huge, 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 huge piece of healing around eating disorder. And it's been a big part of this year actually has been turning and looking at mindfulness when it comes to my relationship to food and the body and feeling enough. You know, I think that that's the, maybe the other piece I'll say is I think I've always thought of fat as too much and fat is the realm of too much. And so much of what I'm learning is that fat a lot of times can be about the not enoughness in the world and not, feeling enough, not feeling when you have enough, not feeling like you ever can get enough, you know, love, community, connection. And that that's like, you know, I love the astrological terminology of like, oh, that's when something's in its detriment. So I'm like fatness in its detriment is about constant hunger. I think fatness when it's in its health is about soft, relaxed presence. So now I feel like I'm resting in that where I'm like, I'm a fat girl who swims 45 minutes a day and loves hugging children and (laughs) like is, you know, my lover's delight in my body. And, and I feel very powerful moving through the world these days. So it's all there. It's reminding me of that question that you brought to the, we can do hard things podcast that I, I still think about daily and often ask the, the people that I work with, which is, are you satisfiable? And I feel like that's kind of really wrapped up in what you said. Exactly. It's really been my area of focus. I, I had a teacher, Stacy Haynes in generative somatics years ago, who asked me that question in a training. 
And really, you know, sometimes you get asked a question. It's like you can feel the brakes, you know, like hold on this. I need to go spelunking in this cave. Like what, what is going on here? And I don't think it had occurred to me in a real way before that the satisfaction was even possible. And and I mean that, like, if I look at my behaviors in terms of eating, in terms of dating, in terms of sex, in terms of, you know, drinking, in terms of drugs, and like every single thing, I was like, I need all of it and the most of it and the excess of it because I, I don't have enough of anything. So I've just got to hoard and grab it all. And it's been so healing to land in this this next phase of my relationship to the world, which is am I satisfiable and how do I know from the inside out when satisfaction is actually happening for me? And it has transformed my whole life. So in my relationships now, rather than constantly being focused on how do I get more? When's the next time we're going to be together? How do I get more hours in this? You know, it's really like, how do I drop into deep presence with our togetherness? How do I get really, really present? with whatever can unfold from us being in this space with each other. And of course, abundance is what emerges from that, right? Is <laughs> I'm like, oh God, just like sitting, you know, like I, I have a few sweethearts right now and I was sitting next to one of them just doing some work. We we're both on our computers doing some work. And all of a sudden I just felt myself smiling like this is so satisfying. Just being here with someone with whom I feel completely at ease, just doing some work next to each other. I have another sweetheart who we have these like bombastic phone conversations. And sometimes I'll just be like, Oh gosh, like just be like letting my mind completely meld with this other mind that is so different from mine is deeply satisfying. And then I'm bringing that into my relationship to food, right? To being like, Oh, there's a certain element of nostalgia that is satisfying to me in food. So how do I balance that with desire for something new? And how do I balance that with what feels nourishing? I've really been getting into also this idea of if you're engaging in things that are nourishing, satisfaction becomes more possible. And when you're engaging in in things, people, relationships, food, (laughs) drugs, anything that's not nourishing, then no matter how much time and effort you put into it, you'll never be satisfied. And I mean, it's just so fun to approach the world that way. I'm like, oh, babes, you're not nourishing. (laughs) You're not nourishing. So I'm just going to set a good boundary here and keep it moving, right? Yeah, (laughs) I love that. Yes, I, oh, I feel like this is something that I struggle with so much. I think so many of us struggle with it. And it feels like in some area of my life, some areas I'm able to do this and other areas that drive, that hunger is um, so present. It's very human, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I want to ask about Octavia Butler because I do believe you were the person who turned me on to Octavia Butler, if I'm not wrong. I think I was reading, yeah, I think I was reading Emergent Strategies a couple of years ago, Emergent Strategy a couple of years ago, and you obviously are a fan. (laughs) Yes. I tell people to put down the book if they have not read her and go read her and come back. (laughs) Because I'm like, 
she makes the world make sense. <laughs> you know, and she, uh, yeah, so I've read a number of her books and it's just her writing and her, I think for me, what is so incredible to me about her work is how she's able to imagine a future in a very spooky, accurate way. Like even Lilith's Brood, those three books, I'm like, oh, 100% that's what's happening. Like three, 300 years from now or whatever. Yeah. Like it just, and the parable books, I feel like, oh, it's like next year. Like it feels very eerie. Yeah. And I, I was just so curious about how, um, if you could share a little bit of maybe about how her work has kind of woven its way into you, into your body, into how you move through the world, because she's obviously had a huge impact on you. Oh, yeah. I mean, your listeners can't see, but over my shoulder is a constant shrine of Octavia Art and all of her books <laughs> that are with me. I mean, I think she was one of the first people who grabbed my imagination fully. Like I felt like there had been writers before that who I loved and who I'd return to, but she was the one who I was just like, wait, hold on. I recognize the characters in these books and they're awkward and they're smart. You know, the kind of cross section of feeling like there's so much about yourself, you have to hide the good things and the things that you think might not be perceived as good. Like, I feel like so much of getting through school, middle school, high school is being like, how do I hide everything about myself to fit in? And reading her work was like, or not, right? She has all these protagonists who are like, I don't fit in. I do stand out. I do have a different idea. I do intervene when I see injustice happening. I do move in a different direction. And it was so exciting to me to be like, that's another way of being that's actually more resonant with me. It makes room for me to exist. And one of her core concepts is about our relationship to change. So in almost every one of her books, she's writing in some way about adaptation and how we get in right relationship with change. And, you know, some people feel her work to be prophetic, but she always said, I'm just paying attention. I'm paying attention. And when you're paying attention, it's actually quite clear to see what is going to come. And you can kind of feel and see, oh, if we keep going down this path, the inevitable thing is we land in injustice and inequality and mass, uh, you know, haves and have nots. You know, she's always worrying at that line. So I feel like I picked up her mantle as much as I can in my work of trying to really not try to escape from the world as it is, but really turn and be with the world as it is and pay attention and activate my own imagination towards the world that I would like to see. And it's rigorous work, actually. Like she was a really rigorous reader. She was a scholar. You know, she was really interested in slugs and ants. And like, you know, she she also paid attention to the natural world. You know, sometimes her characters would become dolphins. She was making love to aliens. I mean, she just, she was like, that balance of being with the real world and imagining the world that we deserve feels really present in my work all the time. 
Mm, mm. Thank you for indulging me in that question. And you knew her, right? Is that is that right? I never got to like talk to her. I did get to meet her when I was in undergrad. She came and spoke at my college and she I got to have a, you know, moment with her after that and I was such a geek. <laughs> You know, but I always say I'm grateful I didn't know then the impact that her work was going to have on my life. I'd only read one book at that point. And I think if I had known, I would have not been able to get words out of my mouth, you know, but because I didn't know I was just awkward and she was awkward and we both survived it. <laughs> I love that. We were just awkward together. <laughs> um, I have a listener question for you that I, that is from, Sabrina Guerin. And I just thought this was so beautiful because it ties into what we were just talking about, the influence Octavia has had on you. So how would Adrian take it, take an example of anti-fat bias or discrimination through your transformative justice framework on both a personal and societal level? Mm. Can we do that? Can we explore that? Yeah, totally. Well, I think one model might be using kitchen table mediation to have a different kind of conversation. So if an instance of anti-fat bias or if someone said something that was really fat phobic in relationship, then kitchen table mediation could be a really good way to move through that. The idea of kitchen table mediation is is what it sounds like, right? It's, having people come and sit down at the kitchen table together and having someone in a simple, steady way hold room for a different conversation to happen where both sides really get to be heard, right? So the person who feels harmed and hurt by what's been said, getting to say, here's how what you said lands on me, lands on my body, lands into the history of what I've been told about my worth and my value. Here's how it impacts the work that I'm doing, right? I think that so often for fat people, when these instances of fat phobia happen, the the thing that we've learned to do is kind of put up a layer of protection around ourselves. Like I won't let that in and I won't let people see that they hurt me. And I tend to create mediation spaces so that the opposite actually becomes possible so that we can actually look at each other and, and see each other's humanity. So often people who are speaking fat phobia are speaking it from their own fear of being rejected in their bodies for who and how they are. They grew up in an environment where they were constantly being told there was something wrong with them, told they needed to avoid fatness, told they needed to, for their own worth, that they needed to be in a normative body. And so that fear takes hold, that phobia takes hold. And so giving a person who has said something a chance to really hear what the impact of, of their words is and the impact of their thinking is, and to get curious, why do you feel this way about the worth of fat people? <laughs> you know, what's what's nourishing that? And I've actually experienced this a few times. And it's always amazing to me when people are like, oh, yeah, like, there are fat people in my life and I would never treat them that way. Or I wouldn't want them treated that way. And sometimes we can all get all the way down into like, oh, here's where I'm afraid. And here's how that fear was guiding me to be cruel. Or here's where I don't want to be hurt. And so I, I move offensively. 
Hello, lovely. I'm jumping into the middle of this episode to let you know that I've started a newsletter on Substack because I've been craving a space where we can have more immediate connection, a space where I can share musings and various resources connected to fat liberation and fat joy. Um, and of course, the place where I can share behind the scenes details about fat joy, the podcast, the guests, all that good stuff. Um, as a thank you for becoming a subscriber, you'll get access to 55 bonus videos from guests as they answer 10 rapid fire questions. You can become a subscriber for free and there's an option to become a paid supporter as well for $5 a month, which will help me continue to make this podcast. You can see all the details at fatjoy.substack.com. To keep myself, you know, offensive as defensive, but at the kitchen table, the idea is we're not sitting here forever. We just want a chance to actually really hear each other and then to make requests. I think it's really meaningful when someone has been harmed for them to be able to say, here's what I need to to make repair possible. And that could be like, I need you to apologize in a real way, like now that you understand what the impact is, or it could be a commitment. Like I need you to really be mindful about how you're looking at bodies through this lens of fat phobia and how much harm it does to even be looking through that lens. Cause I think that's the other piece is people are like, Oh, I won't say it, but I'm going to think it. <laughs> and I'm like, I can feel your thoughts. You know, like we can feel your thoughts. We can feel your attention. We can feel the way you're processing. So that's one piece that feels really crucial. I think an invitation often is it's like when I'm feeling scared of a kind of people or a way of being, a lot of times it's because I, I lack relationality to those people and ways of being. So I think that's the other thing is I would invite people to read the work of fat people, you know, read Hunger from Roxane Gay, read Aubrey Gordon's work, like read the work of people who are thinking about bodies and fatness and and how that's changing right now. Like we're in a really big moment where it's not just like clothing lines are making more clothing for us. There's a lot of unlearning and letting go of ideas we have had about fat bodies as non-normative and kind of recognizing actually that there's just so many kinds of bodies. And if you can see your own body with more compassion, you'll be able to see mine um, with more compassion as human. Yeah. And what's so interesting, I'm just thinking about what you said with the kitchen table mediation, how the person who's causing the harm is often so deeply rooted in their own fear of fatness, which is how diet culture harms all of us, because they've been given that thought, that belief, because we're all swimming in these waters of diet culture. So there's the people who are fat and having to reckon with that and then everyone else who is scared to be fat. Yeah, I think there's that. I also think it's like diet culture and capitalism work together to make us think that there's always something wrong with us. And one of my teachers, Spinta Kandawala, one of the things she offered me was what if there's nothing to fix? And how would you live your life if there was nothing wrong with you and nothing to fix? And it was just about living. And I remember that blowing my mind. Another thought recently that blew my mind 
poet Andrea Gibson was sharing this, that after going through massive bouts with cancer, that they were just so grateful to have a body. They were like, I'm just grateful to have a body. Like, I don't care what it looks like. It's, I'm alive in this body. And that's fantastic. And I remember, you know, just hearing that and the way it moved through my whole system. And so when I think about folks who are out causing harm because they want to call someone fat or short or, you know, disabled or any of the things about bodies that we hurl at each other, it always makes me want to bring it back to that person. Like, what is it you are already shamed about inside of yourself? What are you so scared of in terms of the ways you are different? What are you so scared of that could change in your body? Why do you feel so afraid of your own humanity? And because there's a, you have to have a certain degree of loathing inside yourself, I think, to have something to, to pick up and hurl at someone else. Like, I think if that's not in you, it's not available to throw at anyone else. Like, I don't walk around with that kind of body-based vitriol. So even when someone says something stupid that gets on my nerves, it's not my go-to to be like, and that's why your hair is dumb. You know, like, it's just not in there. I, I, I love my own hair. It's not a, it's not something I could throw as an insult, right? I don't know if you know the work of Alok, but Alok is an incredible leader around trans bodies and I think has a lot of relevant wisdom for this because they've been one of the people who's really been teaching me, oh, when someone is throwing that hatred, it's from their own hatred. It actually doesn't have anything to do with you. And that's so helpful. So then you come into, you know, if you're not trying to be in a relationship, that's a whole different process. But if you're like, this is someone who I care about and who I want to stay in relationship with, and they keep hurting me in this way, that's when it's worth having the conversation. Mm. I don't know if you've seen Aubrey's film, Your Fat Friend, yet or not. No, should I? Yeah, it's amazing. She, yeah, I watched it on Thursday because she had a little blitz over the weekend where I think 100 people or something like that could get tickets and and stream it because they were raising money for some further work that she wants to do with the film, I think. I, I may not have that exactly right, the reasons why, but anyway, I jumped on it, paid my $25 <laughs> and watched the film. And one of the things that is so interesting is the scenes where she is with her family around the dinner table and they all know what she does. They know that she's written, you know, books, a movie is being made about her work with anti-fatness, the podcast, all of this. And still they are talking about diets and, oh, this, this cake is gluten-free and sugar-free and Oh, like the cliches, like, you know, a moment off in the lips, a thousand years on the hips, like that kind of stuff is happening. And I just kept thinking, oh my God, if this is happening in Aubrey Gordon's home, what hope is there for any of us? And so how, I mean, I feel like does kitchen table mediation require that the other side be open and willing and ready. Because I find, at least in my life, and I imagine you've experienced this, certainly a lot of people I talk to have, which is I can only get so far with certain people, but they're my loved ones and I want to go further. But 
at what point do we have to let go, pull back? Like that's what's, that's the part that I find really heartbreaking for a lot of fat people trying to protect themselves from harm. And the way to do that doesn't feel possible. I think there's absolutely, when it comes to mediation, everyone has to be interested in doing the mediation before we get to the table, right? So that's when people care and they're like, I want to know how to make it right. With family, I think that there's more of a conversational ongoing practice to be in where it's first letting people know, you know, something we do in my family, we do a sister check-in and we do these family check-ins. And the idea is to come into relationship with each other around what's happening in your life and to know each other. And I find that so often what's happening when things are like breaking down is family is not necessarily coming together all the time or we're not in regular relationship where we know all the things that are happening with someone. So when we see each other, we're taking in this first glance of like, here's what your body looks like. And I'm having some assessment around that. And because we live in this fat phobic world, right? When we see our loved ones and they put some weight on or whatever, there's, there's this automatic like concern thing that pops on, you know, and instead of having a culture where it's like, Hey, we haven't seen each other. We're sitting down together. Here's what's going on in my life. Here's what matters to me. And if body is not one of the things that's mentioned, it's not one of the things that's actually going on with that person's life right now. It's not one of their priorities, right? So letting that be a practice could be helpful, especially if you have the kind of family where it's like, you don't live together all the time. You are apart and then you're coming together around holidays or birthdays or kind of key moments. I also think that in those key moments, that can be some of the most stressful time to be together because a lot of times when families come together, we're coming together and food is a huge aspect of what we're thinking of in terms of that togetherness, right? It's like, we're going to come together and eat <laughs> and we all want to overeat, except we don't want the fat people to overeat. And if there's just a whole hypocrisy of culture there, something I have found helpful in my own family is everyone really holding that each person is on their own sovereign journey in relationship to their bodies. So even if two people are like, we're, we're following the same eating protocol and other people are like, I'm trying to end diet culture. And so I don't want to deal with any of that. And someone else is, you know, like, well, I'm recovering from heart problems and I have to do this. You know, it's like, actually each person is on their own sovereign journey. And what can we let each other know about how to best be with each other in that sovereign journey? So I can hold the complexity with multiple people in my family. It's not my job to bring it up, right? That's one of the biggest boundaries that I find helpful. I don't bring up anyone else's body. I don't bring it up to them. If they bring something up to me, I'm not commenting like, girl, you look like you lost weight or you gained Although I, that's not, I'm not a walking visual scale. That's not my job, right? What I can notice is someone's vibrance, their aliveness, their presence with me. Those are things that I want to be attending to. I want to ask people how they're doing, how they're feeling. How does it feel to be in your body these days, you know, in this world? So some of it is, is that, is like thinking that each person in the family is responsible for their own sovereign experience inside their body. Uh, Because I also think as fat people, there's a way that we can be like, I'm going to project what I'm doing back onto everyone else here. And I want to, I want to stop that whole cycle, right? That I'm like, 
you know, I'm caught up in this part of my own journey with reclaiming my own sovereignty over my body. And that means I actually want to give you yours, you know? So I have a friend, a family member who the doctors are like, you need to cut all these things out of what you're eating. And for the first couple of years of this, <laughs> every time I would see them, I'd be like, we're going to get you on a green smoothie. We're going to get you on this. We're going to, you know, I was just like really up in it in an unasked for way that felt like, well, I have permission because the doctor said instead of where I have landed now, which is like the doctor told that person what they told them, that person heard it. They now have the sovereignty to choose what they do with that information. Can I honor their freedom to make their own choices about their own body and their own lives and not dictate it from my own selfish desire. (laughs) Right. And because that's what I also want is I'm like, you know, some days are really clear for me what I'm practicing. Other days are less clear for me, especially on super apocalyptic days. I'm like, I don't know. I'm trying not to engage in diet culture. And today I really need to be able to say, I need no gluten at this thing or whatever. Right. And like the fluidity becomes available when we're trusting each other's sovereignty that we can actually come together and everyone can speak about their own needs with the I voice rather than projecting on anyone else what what might uh, an assumed collective need be. I'm just imagining how that would feel. I've never experienced that. Uh, I wish it for you. I wish it for you. I mean, I wish it for all of us, right? I mean, because this to me is the biggest way I tie into the larger politics of our times as well, is I'm like, How do I grant sovereignty to other nations? Then I'm like, I can't tell you how to find peace. I don't know. How do I grant sovereignty? The humility of saying, I actually don't know how to fix all this. I'm I'm trying to learn how to be a human in my own body, right? Or when people try to take away the right I have to have an abortion or to have reproductive justice, I'm like, this is my job. I was given this sacred, holy body it's my job to figure out how I navigate this. It's not yours. You don't get to tell me what to do. I don't get to tell you what to do as long as I'm not harming anyone else. Like this is mine to navigate. And that to me feels like a real way of being free uh, amongst free people in the world. And I love that term body sovereignty. The way, the other word I've heard, the other phrase is body autonomy, but there's something about the word autonomy that always feels a little robotic to me. So I really love the word sovereignty because sovereign, like that has a more, a bit of a regalness, a more of like a depth to it as a word. All right. Body sovereignty. I'm going to think about that. I, one of the things you talked about, I've heard you talk about was this like, adjacent to this around how you show up with your family. And again, tying into what you were just saying, like, I'm not going to lecture. I'm not going to talk about my, everyone's just going to do their thing. And I, I've thought so much about that because I've essentially gone no contact with my family for these reasons. And it's been over a year now. And I keep thinking there has to be a better way to keep myself from harm but also keep in right relationship and in loving relationship with them. And I I feel the truth of what you're saying. And it's so interesting because I also still feel the, mm, the reluctance of the possibility of being harmed again within myself too. I feel that push-pull so clearly 
And again, I think this is true for a lot of fat people and probably other marginalized people too, who are trying to both protect themselves physically, mentally, emotionally, and yet also not wanting to lose belonging and lose connection and lose love. It's very challenging. Yeah, it is. I mean, I I think the only thing I can offer into that is it's all about relationships. It's all about relationships. And I think if you sit down in a relationship with someone, you say, here's what I'm inviting you into in terms of relationship with me. It's not going to be perfect. You're not, I, I, you know, like that's, I I don't expect from anyone in my family that they're never going to put their foot in my mouth or cross a boundary that is just forming in me or, you know, hurt me in some way again. Right. Um, But I do pay attention to like, can this relationship handle me and this other person both being here in it? And if they do do something, can I be loyal to myself and say, Hey, that hurt. That's what I'm talking about in terms of the things you say that are harmful. Um, And, or can you make other choices? I recently had a conversation with a family member who, whose fat phobia really impacted me when I was younger. And now there's a next generation of folks coming up in our family. And I was able to engage in a conversation that I could see I'm drawing from my own experience to help guide this person to a different way of showing up with the next generation. And I'm like, you know, how do I transform the, like, I no longer have to feel worried about the harm because I've got so much resilience and strength in my own life that like, I I just, I don't know that pivot has happened. I'm like, they don't mean to harm me and I don't have to receive harm from them. And if something really does feel like it's crossing the line, my, my job is to say, here's the boundary. And if I can't say the boundary and I, and they can't hold it, then that, yeah, you know, you just hold the space, right? The boundary, Prentice Hemphill says that boundaries are the distance at which I can love you and myself simultaneously. And I think that I apply that method all the time where I'm like, you know, if you hurt me, can we recover? Right? If we can't recover, then the distance I need is going to be further. If we can recover, then we can be closer. The truest intimacy I have in my life is with people who know how to apologize well. Mm. Oh, oof. that's so good. Yeah. So it's not that we never make mistakes, <laughs> but when we do, we know how to say, hey, my bad. Oh, Adrian, that's amazing. And I also just, you know, things that like talk about, you know, getting a question or hearing something that kind of like stops you in your tracks. I think I've been expecting perfection. In fact, I know I have. Like if they can't do it and promise never to harm me again, I'm not in. How unfair of me. <laughs> well, it's just, I mean, it's just not possible, right? Because, you know, at the same time, it's like they're saying something and it might be worth asking, you know, this, I do get curious with people. I'm like, are there things that I'm saying or doing that are triggering for you in some way about some aspect of your identity? And, you know, I have people in my life who are like, yeah, there's ways you tease me that make me think you don't think I'm smart or other things. I'm like, oh, I would never do that, you know, but yes, I'm a human being. So of course I have done all the things. And, um, but I think having that softness of like, if you relinquish perfection, what is the relationship that's actually here? Is there real love in it? And what are the boundaries that are needed? You know, and the boundary is really, here's what I need. It's not like, here's what you need, but here's what I need. Um, you know, one of my sisters does a great job of being like, I don't want to be asked anything about food. 
I'm going to manage it and I'm, I'm going to manage what I need to manage here. I don't want anyone asking me about any accommodations or the grocery list or anything. I, I, I can figure myself out here. And it's like, Oh, that's clear. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah for sure. Great. Right. It makes it easy to say yes. That. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that. Thank you. That's very helpful. We're going to go into our final question, which is around, I always end every conversation with joy because I find, I joke, we, we kind of complain for a while and talk about the state of the world and, but we're going to come back to joy at the end. So what, how do you connect to joy, Adrienne? Mm-hmm. Frequently as a practice, I really have been leaning into the joy of being present in relationship lately. That's been the place where I'm like, even though we are in a, you know, in the end of a certain moment of empire in the U S and everything is dysfunctional and falling apart. And even though there is death unfolding all around us and the future feels really uncertain, it's like, I can hold that all of that is true. And then I can like, sit with one of my nibblings and like watch a movie while we are like wrapped up on the couch. And I'm just like, this is life. This is what it's all about. And for me, joy is, it's, it's really that elated happiness. It's that next, it's like, I'm not just, you know, I love satisfaction. That's a great one. But I really love the feeling of being like, this is what I would choose for this moment of my life in every parallel universe. I would choose this and I get to be in it. And then I've been really leaning into celebrating the small victories. So I have been breaking out of a cycle of binge eating and I have a sweetheart who's really tracking that with me and like celebrating as each month passes. I was recently taken to a celebration dinner just from someone who's like, I want to celebrate how you've been showing up in the world. And it was like, I'm showing up and in ways that have been hard and I'm showing up in ways that have been hard without slipping into binging behavior. And it was so sweet to have someone just be like, let's celebrate that and, and celebrate it in ways that don't perpetuate harm. <laughs> so I feel like joy for me, it's a, it's a real practice. And it's something that I'm trying to tap into as much as I can while also aware that I'm like, you, I, for me, I don't think it's sustainable to just try to be there all the time. So it's also really relishing the moments when, you know, like, like I said, like last week was my dad's 70th birthday and getting to sit in a circle of people and hear how much everyone loves him and knowing that it was a really, you know, just precious for him and precious for each other person there. And I just felt so much joy that I got to live in that moment. It's, and I don't take any of it for granted. I think that's maybe the other one of the other major ingredients for joy. I don't think you can experience joy when you're taking the world for granted. So that's why I feel like people who have excess of resources often miss joy completely because they have access to everything and they kind of take it all for granted. Whereas people who are, you know, really up to their elbows in the work of life when you get those moments of rest or you get those moments of connection, it's like, holy shit, this you is feel good. It. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love all that. Thank you. And so Adrian, you have a poem for us. Yes. I do. Amazing. So this poem is from the book Fables and Spells 
collected a new short fiction poetry, which I put out last year. And the poem is called A Spell for Reclaiming the Moment. It goes like this. Even now, we could be happy. Even now, breathing in, filling our bodies with right now from the dirt below us, from our toes to our knees, hips up our spines, shoulders to earlobes, the tip top of our heads to beyond to the stars, breathing wide across our wingspan into that sacred and constant silk web where we belong, breathing deep, inhale back to great grandmother's bosom, exhale seven generations of blessings that will come through our next choices. Even now, we can be present. Even now, life is right here, still, an erotic pulse kissing your jawline, a restlessness of mind, too much, too little. There's still someone you are longing to see, someone who startles you with simple pleasure just because they exist even now. We can anticipate harvest, be shocked by the thunderclap, the storm, laugh at the abundance of our grief and our earnest attempt to avoid the inevitable. We are a delight. We could be another's blessing with our brief and epic lives where every day we are given the option of love. Oh, even now. Oh even my now. gosh, that was beautiful. Be happy. Oh, Adrian, this has been incredible. I am just, I feel very satisfied in this moment. I'm so glad, <laughs> so, Sophia. Thank you. This has been a really beautiful conversation. Oh, thank you. Thank you for joining me today. My hope is that you're feeling a little less alone and a little more seen. So until the next episode, you can find me on Instagram at fatjoy.life, on YouTube at youtube.com slash at fatjoy, and on Substack at fatjoy.substack.com. And please do check out the episode notes for how you can connect with my amazing guest and for the links to the poem. All right, lovely. I am sending you off with my best wishes for an abundantly fat joy day. And we'll talk again soon.